0: Thank you, ladies' ensemble, as well as the choir. And thank you to all for the special music. It has been a blessing already this morning. and appreciate Pam, Emily, Jake, and all those who help with coordinating and uh, conducting and accompanying and uh, all of that. And uh, I appreciate so many. uh, I guess I'm not on, am I? All of a sudden, I got quieter and quieter. There we go. Anyway, I do appreciate all of those involved in our music ministry, and uh, they are a blessing to us. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And I know this, again, is not a specific Christmas message. Uh, We will have some time for a devotional on Wednesday night, along with some uh, additional scripture readings and uh, some praise and testimony times and some Christmas songs Wednesday Look forward to that candlelight service together. And then next Sunday, uh, with the Lord's help, I will bring a specific Christmas uh, message in our morning service next Sunday. But this theme of Christ's humility is, is very evident in this passage. Uh, the Christmas theme of the humility of Christ uh, is, is so uh, predominant in the, the, the Christmas message the fact that Jesus Christ would come from the glories of heaven to this sin-cursed earth and came to die, came to die on Calvary. And we just spent the last few uh, weeks uh, or last couple of Sunday mornings in our Sunday school, our adult Bible study class, looking at five ways that Christ emptied himself. And and this really is a continuation of that theme that Christ humbled himself. And, And Christ's emptying of himself really speaks to his humility. And in John chapter 13, we see a very practical demonstration of Christ's humility. John chapter 13, we looked at last week in verse number 1, that it's the time of the feast of the Passover. When Jesus knew that his hour was come, in verse 1, that he should depart out of this world... Unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So we looked last week at the enduring love of Christ. He loved them in the world. In other words, he loved us while we were yet sinners. While, we're yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and verse number 8 says, He came to this cruel, cruel, wicked world to die for us. He did it because he loved us. We also see here in this verse that he loved us, he loved them unto the end. Specifically, we must make the application to believers. Christ's love for believers, those who know Christ as their Savior, those who are his children, those who have received him. We know in John chapter 1 and verse number 12, but as many as received Him, that to them gave He power, the authority, to be called the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And these specifically, those who are His children, He loves us to the end. This love is a perfect love. That's what this phrase, unto the end, means. It means unto perfection. Christ's love for us as believers is a perfect, saving And eternal love. He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians 1, in verse number 6. So this love is an enduring love. It is an eternal love, and it is a perfecting love. Christ's love for us means that He is going to sometimes bring trials and tribulations and suffering into our lives in order to perfect our faith, in order to increase our faith, in order to cause us to trust Him more, in order to purge out some of the sin and the dross and the besetting sins. But this love of Christ, as we looked at from Romans 8 and verses 35 through 39, this love of Christ for us, nothing can separate us from that love. The proofs of Christ's love continued until the day He ascended up into heaven. And as I mentioned already, the proofs of Christ's love continue into eternity. Hebrews 13 and verse number 8, we read that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ is not like a human being. As we know in our culture today, people fall in and out of love all the time. Even in a committed Married relationship, our love waxes and wanes. Now, we have a covenant love before God to one another. And what God hath put together, let no man put asunder. That's God's ideal and original intention. We know that because of sin, there is divorce. We know that uh, that has uh, been an uh, affliction in Uh, the family and marriage, and I'm not here to uh, cast judgment or to sound condemning uh, because of divorce, Uh, but we understand that divorce is a reality. We understand that that God forgives. We understand that God uh, can take even a a, a bad uh, married uh, or home situation and and make something good out of it. We know that God can overrule and God can overcome and, and God restores and God renews. Uh, So I'm not trying to sound condemning or or judgmental on those who have been affected by divorce. But it it is where our culture often has this uh, breakup or, well, I I fell out of love. Uh, I used to be in love. There was uh, another famous country singer, I guess, this week that mentioned that uh, she no longer was in love with her husband, that the... The, the, the gleam of their marriage had, had gone away, and so they had uh, sought a divorce. We, we know high-profile couples that have recently divorced and have made the headlines. And, and there's things like, well, we are, we are incompatible. Where once we were compatible, now we're incompatible. And there's different uh, ways in which they, they try to describe uh, this, this breakup, and, and, and Christ's love for us is not that way. The, the, there's all kinds of ways in which we offend a holy God, in which we sin against a holy God. There are all kinds of ways in which we break fellowship with our Savior, with our Lord. Just as a child will disobey his mom or dad, and, and there has to be consequences, there has to be chastening. We experience that as believers, yet God's love for us remains Christ's love for us continues. He loves us unto the end. We, we have assurance in that love. That should sustain us. That should give us confidence in living a holy and a righteous life. It gives us satisfaction. It gives us peace. It sustains us in the difficult times. It sustains us when it seems that everybody else has forsaken us, when relationships are hard, when things are difficult, when there's a loneliness epidemic in our culture today and, and, and there's despair all around. What a joy it is to know the love of Christ and to know that His love for us endures forever. And then we saw in verse number two last week, we saw the heart of the traitor, Judas. We see there in verse number two, in supper being ended, literally, it means that the supper has been prepared. It has been made ready. The supper is in place. That's what that uh, phrase, being ended, is referring to. It has to do with the, the preparations have been completed for the supper. It is all prepared and ready. And at that point, we read there that Satan, the devil himself, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Down in verse number 27, it is literally said that Satan entered into him. Luke 22 and verse number 3 then entered Satan into Judas. Uh, Commentators uh, disagree uh, somewhat. Good commentators, good men disagree as to whether Satan literally took over Judas' body. And again, my point isn't to get into demonology and to get into all the ins and outs, but the point is, that whether the devil, who was an angel, whether it is literally him entering into Judas's body and possessing him in a literal way, or whether it is simply a way of speaking to the demonic inspiration or possession of Judas, it nevertheless speaks to the diabolical evil that Judas had assented to, that Judas had given himself over to. And we spent some time last week talking about the wickedness and the evil of man's heart. We don't like to think in those terms. But if not for the grace of God, we are capable of committing any kind of gross evil. We see in history, we see what's going on in the world right now, we see in so many ways the depravity of man's heart just coming out especially as there are fewer and fewer inhibitions, as there are fewer and fewer laws and fewer and fewer fewer restrictions and judgments. And sadly, there's less and less revelation of the Word of God in the faithful preaching and proclamation of God's Word, as we are seeing less and less of the Word of God being preached faithfully, line upon line, precept upon precept then it's no wonder our culture descends even more into depravity and immorality and wickedness. And Judas, having been so close to Christ for all these years, having been so close to Christ yet now had turned his heart so far away that he would leave this dinner that night, that supper, and he would go out and he would take those 30 pieces of silver and come back later, And betray Christ. Despicable evil. Hard to fathom. Judas had sold his soul to the devil. And now the devil was coming to get what he paid for. Judas would die a miserable death. Later he would give back the 30 pieces of silver to be used to buy a potter's field. Judas would go out and he would hang himself. In suicide. And enter into eternal damnation. It's a sad, sad story. But there is the sin that afflicted Judas that afflicts all of us. And it's a warning about hypocrisy. It's a warning about the depravity of our heart and the need for us to be humbly submissive to the Lord and responsive to His Word and listening to the conviction and to the rebuke of God's word and to the chastening and to sometimes the consequences that God orchestrates in our lives to cause us to look to Him. It's in times where we face consequences and we face chastening that we read in Hebrews chapter number 12 that that chastening is for a purpose to bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So we as believers, while we look at a Judas and we are Appalled at the the evil, and rightly so. At the same time, may we humbly realize that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Our sin makes us guilty before God. And while Judas rejected Christ, may we not be lifted up in pride. May we be humble and once again be thankful and grateful for the great salvation that we have received of the Lord. And the importance of living a faithful life, living a life of integrity, living a life that's responsive and submissive to the word of God and to God's work in our lives. So that brings us now to verse number three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. We see this morning, we see the assurance, the assurance of the Savior. The assurance of the Savior, Christ was confident in the Father's will. Verse number three again, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was come from God and went to God. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He was certain that he was doing exactly what the Father had sent him to do. There was an assurance that Christ was fulfilling the Father's will. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, we read all things, Jesus says, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. John 3 and verse 35, the Father, lov- the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. This speaks to the deity of Christ. This speaks to the authority of Christ. This speaks to the will of the Father that Christ once again was 100% committed to. And I know I have said this over and over and over throughout our series in the book of John. But what an example of following God's will that we should follow. I emphasize this so much because it is so important that we be obedient to the will of God. And we make the will of God sometimes so complicated, so complex, we make it sometimes so hard when it's, first of all, simply obeying the next step. Simply obeying in the next right thing that God would have us to do. And we see that throughout the life of Christ, he just simply obeyed the will of the father step by step all throughout his ministry to the fulfillment of God's redemption plan to the point where he would say on the cross, it is finished. Paul, another example, Christ, of course, being the greatest example of obeying the father's will, but Paul said, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, I have finished my course. That kind of commitment to the Father's will took Paul even into places of great suffering and persecution. But Paul remained committed to the very last days of his life, continuing to preach the gospel until he died a martyr's death. Sometimes the will of God takes us to a place of suffering, takes us to a place of pain, takes us to a place of hardship. But God has a purpose in that. God has a plan in that. God has a reason for that. Jesus says in verse 3 that he was come from God, or the the Scripture speaks of Jesus knowing excuse me that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. In completing and fulfilling the Father's will, Jesus looked ahead to the eternal. He looked ahead to what was the Father's glory. Jesus would soon experience the glories of heaven once again that He had left to come to this earth to die on the cross for us. He would soon experience the exaltation to the right hand of the Father the sacrifice for our sins would be complete and the wrath of God would be satisfied. Jesus looked to the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we are in God's will, we can have the same confidence that Christ had. Despite the difficulties that are facing us. We can have joy, as James 1 says, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We can have joy even in the trials, even in the tribulations, even in the suffering, knowing that it is ultimately going to bring glory to God. The sufferings, the trials, the tribulations are for our good and for God's glory. Jesus understood that. He had been sent. By the Father, all things had been given unto him. He was come from God and he went to God. May we have that same commitment to the Father's will. That even though it might mean a hard choice, though it might mean a sacrifice that we in our flesh would not want to make, though it may mean that we have to take a step of faith that we never, in our human mind, would, would ever consider. But we know God is calling us to do that. We know that God is leading us to do that. We know that it might mean that we have to step up as a father or as a mother or as a husband or as a wife. It may mean that we have to take our level of commitment in our service for the Lord to a, a, a new level, It may mean that it will cost us some time. It may cost us some money. It may cost us some fame, some fortune, some attention, some affection from the world. But it will be worth it all that we might gain Christ, that we might hear from him, Well done, thou good and faithful servants. That we might have the joy and the peace and the satisfaction of knowing that we are doing exactly what God wants us to do. And we are obedient to his will, to his word in every way. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse number 9, we know the verse well. And he said unto me, this is Paul writing by the inspiration of God. And he said unto me, Jesus, as Paul had prayed three times for the Lord to take away his infirmity is thorn in the flesh. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather. Paul then writes, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's a hard thing for us to live out we we love the verse we know the verse we memorize the verse we quote the verse but when the rubber meets the road are we willing to live that verse out to glory in the infirmities that God has in his providence in his sovereignty orchestrated in our lives to glory in our infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me Don't we want the power of Christ? I know Philippians 4 and verse 13, it sounds so much more appealing. I understand that. And that verse, believe me, it is the inspiration of God. It is a verse that we need to claim. I understand that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But sometimes that all things includes hard things. Self-disciplining things, self-sacrificing things, things that the world would say are not worth sacrificing, things that the world would say, oh, you would be a fool to give up, things that the world would say, oh, why live that way? What's the value in that? You're going to miss out. You're going to lose out. You're not going to have. You're not going to be able to do. But no, We say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the Father's will. I'm going to remain faithful to God's principles, to God's commands, to God's promises, and I'm going to even do the hard thing because God will give me the strength to do it, and I want the power of Christ to rest upon me, even if that means an infirmity, even if that means a trial or a tribulation that God wants me to go through by His grace. Christ had the assurance of the Father, That he was fulfilling 100% the Father's will. But then we come down to verse number 4 and we see the example of service. Not just the assurance of the Savior, but the example or an example of service. An example of service. Verse 4. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith... He was girded. Christ washed the disciples' feet. What would have been the job of a servant, Christ took upon Himself. What none of the other disciples were willing to do, the King of kings did. From a place of honor, He stepped into a place of humility. As a matter of fact, down in verse number 14, If I then, your Lord and Master have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet was Christ their lord and master yes he went from a place of honor to a place of humility and he performed a task that would in that culture be relegated to a household servant and most often to a slave that's the ministry that Christ did by washing the disciples' feet. Makes us think of 2 Corinthians 8 in verse number 9 where we read, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. What was going on in the context? Luke 22 gives us some more context. Another inspired account. Luke chapter 22. We understand that the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest among them. Hey, Peter, are you going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Ha <laughs> ha. You and your big mouth. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I'm going to be the right hand. Look at all that I've done for you. I can just hear it all. Here's these disciples I can hear the put downs. I know they were disciples of Christ. They were apostles. They were godly men, but they had a lot of rough edges. They had a lot that God was doing in their lives. And it's hard for us to believe. And we can't think of ourselves too pious or too spiritual because we're guilty too often of doing similarly. Oh, the disciples, they're not very humble at this time kind of jockeying for position. I can even imagine what it was like trying to figure out who was going to sit where at the table. If they're arguing over who's going to be the, the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to be at the right hand of the Father, can you imagine what it was like trying to, you know, I, don't want to I don't want to exaggerate uh, or, or overdo this, but we have children or grandchildren maybe that fight over seats in a van or the seat in the cou- at the couch, the best seat, in the living room, the best seat at the the table, maybe closest to the desserts, isn't that our isn't that our nature to go to the box of pizza and to get there first and get the biggest, juiciest, cheesiest piece before anybody else gets there? we we we, we chuckle at that, but it's our human selfish nature, isn't it? And I don't, want to, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So I can only imagine that they're even possibly arguing who's going to sit where at the table to be closest to Jesus, to be where Jesus can best see them and acknowledge them, where they can be in the best position to be rec- recognized. How sad. But how often our pride hinders us from serving the Lord like we should, from being in the place where God can really use us. We bicker and fight among ourselves over petty issues that are backed up only by our pride, our selfishness. Are we too proud to admit when we're wrong? Are we too proud to forgive, to offer an apology? Are we too wrapped up in ourselves and our self-importance that we don't think of others? Am I constantly seeking the spotlight? Am I constantly trying to work my way in so I can be recognized, I can be praised, I can be given privilege? Do we always think it has to be our way? What about our vengeful and bitter spirits? Is that not a manifestation of pride? Don't you know who I am? That was unfair. Don't you realize who I am? How could you possibly have done that to me? Isn't that our culture? Isn't that what we're taught by our culture? My rights, my way. Get out of the way, because I'm on my highway to do my thing. And you better get out of the way, because I know what I'm doing. And I know who I am, and I have my truth, and I am living my truth. And your truth had better not get in the way of my truth, because my my truth trumps your truth. Now how is that going to leave us with an organized and efficient society? No, it's causing the moral breakdown of our society. It's destroying families. It's destroying homes. It's destroying business. It's destroying our economy. It's destroying our churches. It's destroying the fabric of our nation. And it's rooted in pride, which was the root of Satan's very sin that caused him to be cast out of heaven because he wanted to be exalted. And that root sin of pride can get into our hearts and our lives, just like the disciples, so we better not be too judgmental of them. We have to be careful. Humility, humility is not so much thinking less of ourselves. It is actually not thinking of ourselves at all. I had a teacher one time who described humility as a zero on the chalkboard. And then he went over and he erased the zero. Thought it was a powerful illustration of humility. We're not just a zero, we're actually a zero with the lines rubbed out. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 teaches us to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. You know, I think of myself more than I think of anybody else in in any given day. And I'm ashamed to say that. That that makes me a proud person. I have to battle that every day because I just naturally and I mean, we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus said that because we're already in love with ourselves. We don't need any extra help loving ourselves. I know there's a self-care movement, and I understand there's some value in having some self-care. Okay, I get it. I'm not saying that all that is a waste of time. But this self-care movement that is in our culture is many times just another form of selfish, making man like a god. And we read in in the scriptures, like in Romans 12 and verse number 10, we're, we're to be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Romans 12 and verse number 16, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. That hurts our pride, but we need our pride stepped on. We need a good piece of humble pie quite often because we think of ourselves way too highly, and we're catechized by our culture to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. It permeates professional athletics, it permeates corporate America, it's everywhere we go. Social media has self on steroids it's all about me and what I can do to impress you. I'm not saying social media is all bad, but social media just seems to emphasize self. And then we get into the comparison and the envy game. Philippians 2 we're told, look not every man in his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is what Jesus modeled as he Rose up from the supper, laid aside his garments, took the towel and girded himself as he pours the water into the basin. I can only imagine. All of a sudden, the the clinging of the jars and the bottle and the water pouring in the disciples. All of a sudden, I can hear the silence in the room. The last word is spoken. No, me, I. And then that clinging and that pouring. And they see and they look over and there's Jesus and he's walking over to them and he's getting down on his knees. And he starts to pour that water out and he starts to wash the disciples' feet. Can you imagine the conviction that must have come over that group? Can you imagine the silence that we've sometimes experienced as we realize, uh uh-oh, I just said or did something I shouldn't have, and now everybody's looking at me. And there's that silence of conviction that I can only imagine came across the room as Jesus began to pour that water and began to wash the disciples' feet. We look down in verse number 6. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost dost thou wash my feet? The disciples were probably embarrassed by this point, realizing what they had just been doing and arguing and their selfishness. And of course, who speaks up? The man with foot and mouth disease, Peter. As he often would, he would be the first one to speak up and not always filtering through his mind what should come out his mouth. He just speaks. And he actually says to Christ, Dost thou wash my feet? What business do you have, Christ, washing my feet? He realized that he should have been the one down washing the feet. Now he was guilty. And he's trying to get himself out of the situation. Maybe Peter's trying to now sound spiritual. Sometimes that's what we do. We get caught in conviction, and instead of humbling ourselves and saying, please forgive me, I'm wrong, we then get in defense mode, and we try to hyper-spiritualize our situation, as if that can be some sort of false humility to assuage the guilt. But Christ rebukes Peter. He goes on in verse number 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, 'What, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him in verse 8. Peter goes the next step in verse 8. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Peter's really thinking he's spiritual now. He's really taking the humble road. You don't need to do that, Lord. I know better than you, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part. With me. (laughs) Peter all of a sudden has nothing to say. I'm sure that there was a conviction as the grasp of the spiritual application began to hit home. To refuse Christ's cleansing would be to reject Christ Himself and to die in one's sins. There's a symbolic or a spiritual symbolic application here that Christ is making. Not just the humility and the practical aspect of this humble act, but also the symbolic aspect of what He is doing that Christ is trying to teach and to make plain. The word part, as we read there in verse number 8, if I wash Thee not, thou hast no part with me. That word "part" means to participate or to have a share in or with. As Peter was probably rebuked and his mouth got quiet, and he begins to grasp what he is, what Jesus is trying to say. Then we see, then we see Peter in verse number nine, beginning to realize. The spiritual application, the symbolic aspect of what Christ is doing. And he says in verse number nine, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean Christ's humble act made a symbolic spiritual application the physical washing the physical washing was a representation of the spiritual cleansing that only Christ can provide in verse number 10 the word wash means to wash all over to cleanse completely every part It is indicative, it is symbolic of the spiritual cleansing that takes place at salvation through the blood of Christ. And it is in the perfect tense, indicating that it is an action that is done once and for all time. Speaking even to eternal security. So verse number 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit. So Christ is saying after we after we are cleansed at salvation after we are washed in whole cleansed at salvation we then only need regular foot washings. In other words as we go throughout the Christian life we get our feet dirty. We get our feet dirty with sin. We get our feet dirty with the vice of this world and we have to have our feet cleansed. Spiritually speaking, we need regular confession times before the Lord. We need to keep short sin accounts before the Lord. We're so thankful for 1 John 1 and verse number 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is spoken to believers. We have dirty feet as we go through life, and we need to be cleansed. We need constant confession. We need regular forgiveness. We don't lose our salvation every time we sin. Jesus says, if you have been cleansed, washed all, then you only need the foot washings. So once saved, always saved. Once we have become a child of God, we don't get cast out of the family when we sin. But there is a fellowship that needs to be restored because that fellowship is broken when we sin as a believer. And we need that foot washing that Jesus is illustrating symbolically here. Our sin can cause us to break fellowship with our Heavenly Father and will prevent spiritual growth and will prevent fruitfulness. That's why we need these regular cleansings. Psalm 66 and verse 18 If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This even goes back to the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 29, in verse number 4, the priest would be bathed all over one time at his consecration, but he would regularly have to wash his hands and his feet. At the brass laver as he performed his priestly duties. Exodus 30 and verses 18 through 21. But we understand, as Jesus said, that not everyone in the room was clean. Not everyone in the room had been washed wholly, completely. And that was obviously a reference to Judas. He was unsaved and he was about to betray Christ. And then Jesus, as we read in our scripture reading, at the end of verse number 12, let's go back, let's go, go to verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. He once again, he reinforces, he repeats, like a teacher in a classroom who has just taught a lesson and illustrated it, now comes back at the end of the class and goes back over the lesson of the day and reviews it one more time to really help get the lesson home, to really teach what needs to be learned. And it's as if Jesus does that here in verses 13-17. through And He asks them at the end of verse 12, in a sense, He's just asking, do you understand the lesson? Do you get what I'm doing? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? As their Master and Lord, He took the role of a servant, To give them an example of how God's work gets done. The world glorifies power and position, but God honors humility and submission. Psalm 51 and verse 17, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Jesus gave dignity and honor to service and humility. This is a concept that is foreign that was foreign to the Romans and to the Greeks. From what I understand, I need to do some further research on this, from what I understand, there was no, no word for humility in the Roman and Greek languages. It was actually a word that was taken, borrowed from the, the Koine Greek, and was then infused with biblical teaching regarding what humility really is, because there wasn't an actual word in the Greek language, in the Roman language, that really describe true humility. This concept is really not even understood until the scriptures, until God, by the inspiration of his word, gives it to us. And Christ illustrated it with his life and lived it out. Jesus gave dignity, he gave honor to service and humility. While the Romans and the Greeks despised Service and humility Christ exemplified it, exemplified it, and said, "This is how we must live, and our culture doesn't give much dignity and honor to service and humility, and we have to go against the grain of our culture and love one another and serve one another and serve God even in the base, regular, everyday Normal things. And that may mean painting a wall, putting away a table or a chair, swabbing a toilet, taking out the trash. It may mean picking up something off the floor. Or it may mean taking a bag of groceries to someone's house. It may mean babysitting somebody's bratty kids that you wouldn't want to normally babysit, but you do it out of love and sacrifice. You go out of your way when somebody's in the hospital and you help with a meal. A hundred and if not a thousand other ways in which we can serve one another and we can do the hard thing and we can do the thing that we in the world might say is below our pay grade. But we do it anyway because we know it's the right thing to do and we love God and we want to serve others and we want to give God the glory for it. Proverbs 16 and verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Daniel 4 and verse 37, those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. We have a choice. Live in service and humility, or live in pride and suffer the consequences of it. Christ gives us the example of service and humility. A servant leader is willing to serve with those he or she leads. A servant knows his place and obeys his master, but a master unwilling to identify with and serve alongside those he or she leads is not a true servant leader. And Jesus brings it, I know there's a few more verses in the paragraph, but he kind of brings it to a climax in verse 17, where he says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them, the world says service, humility, letting other people praise you and not your own mouth. That is the right way. That's the way to happiness. That's the way to joy and satisfaction. The world says no. The world says you got to get your own. you got to get out. you got to even if it means you have to go out and, and stick a flag in the center of the field so everybody sees that you won and you can get the headline. Knock the guy off the racetrack and then get into his window and curse at him, and then you can get all the talking points at the end of the race. The world says, put yourself out there and climb the corporate ladder and knock down all the people. It's a dog eat dog world, by the way. So each gets his own, and you get yours, and I'll get mine. That's the world's mentality. But Jesus says, if you know these things, these things that I've just taught, the things that I have just lived out, that I've just practically applied and shown, happy are ye if you do them. True joy, true satisfaction, true happiness comes in humility and in service for God and for others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great example of Jesus Christ who humbled himself and was obedient even to the cross. Thank you for this great example in John 13 by our Savior. Lord, may we model our life after Jesus Christ. May we be humble in serving you and serving others for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand to your feet and if you'll take your hymnal... We will turn to hymn number 227. Hymn number 227, Emily played the offertory, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, so beautifully. Earlier, we're going to sing stanza number three of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If God has done a work in your heart this morning, you can do business with the Lord even as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, we'd be happy to do so. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, today can be the day that you trust Christ, and we'd be happy to take some time after the service and show you from the Word of God how you can know that your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven. But at this time, we're going to sing. Uh, this stanza, stanza number three of 227, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, as Jake comes and leads us. the gospel is so powerfully proclaimed in that song, especially that stanza there of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. May the Lord give us opportunities even this week to share the gospel this Christmas season as we're with family and friends and as the Lord gives us opportunity, may we take advantage of those divine appointments. We look forward to being back 5 o'clock this evening. We'll uh, look at hope and prophecy and hopefully, uh, Lord willing, be able to finish up um, our study on the tribulation and then we'll take a break from that as next week we'll just have the one service in the morning. But thank you so much for being here. It's been a joy to worship together. And again, we look forward to being back this evening and ask Grant Rumba if Grant will close us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Amen. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for being here.